And for this episode of GDP, we're very happy to have once again Anders Hayden join us, who's an associate professor in the Department of Political Science at Dalhousie University in Halifax. Now, he's currently interested in the evolving balance between efforts to promote ecological modernization and green growth and sufficiency-based challenges to the endless growth of production and consumption. He's written on efforts to promote green growth in Canada, Britain, and the European Union. His interest in the sufficiency approach has included examination of policies and initiatives to reduce hours of work as well as research on Bhutan, a country that has established a gross national happiness index rather than gross national product as its overall writing goal. Again, he has done a lot of work on the environment, on green growth and ecological modernization, and here to sort of look into the crystal ball of the future when it comes to climate change after the COVID-19 pandemic, we're happy to have Anders Aiden. Anders, welcome to GDP. Thanks, Bob. Always a pleasure to have you here. And uh, for this podcast in particular, as you know, we're we're using this one as part of our pandemic course that's offered at Dalhousie in the fall of 2020. And one of the things that's sort of come up in sort of pouring over the, the academic articles that are now coming forward and the constant stream of news media about COVID-19 is that everyone has felt some sort of disruption from this pandemic in some way. And some people have taken this to predict something else, that as a result of, of all of this disruption, some are saying that this could be uh, just a foretelling of what this type of disruptions we're going to experience from climate change to be. So as disruptive as, as, as COVID-19 has been to the world, and as many ordinances that have been put in place by governments around the world, some say that this is only just a, just a taste of what's to come. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think it's a little bit of a challenge to compare the two because I, I think they're different kind of disruptions, both in terms of the, I mean, the nature of the, the problems that they generate, um, but also the time period. Uh, you know, we don't know exactly how long we're going to be contending with COVID, um, but it's likely to be a much shorter term event than climate change. You know, we're talking, maybe we're talking a couple of years. Perhaps maybe we get a vaccine sooner. Maybe it takes longer. Um, we don't know exactly. Undoubtedly, it will have some effects that last for decades to come in terms of changes that we adopt and and, and so on. Um, you know, and I don't want to minimize in any way the significance of COVID, but I, I think climate change involves a, a much longer lasting challenge to human civilization. I mean, we really are changing the conditions for life on earth, you know, that we've known as long as we've had human civilization, we are changing that. Um, it's likely to have impacts for centuries or millennia to come. And, and so it's a much bigger, longer term uh, challenge rather than this kind of acute, um, but relatively short term crisis related to COVID. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things I, I agree with you on that, and one of the things that uh, has come forward is that you know, could we imagine uh, March twenty twenty from the perspective of March twenty nineteen, mm. uh, the the global connectivity of the world through air travel, particularly, 
and the the frequency of 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 travel. I mean, you know, there there are literally cities in the sky of, of people just zipping all over the world and consuming quite a bit of carbon in the process. To fast forward from 2019 into 2020, I don't think anyone could imagine that travel itself just ground to a complete halt uh, by all stretches of the imagination. And, and ironically, the youth climate protests that were taking place in late 2019 we're, we're calling exactly for that, for, for less uh, carbon-based travel to uh, consider things like more sailing across oceans and, and this sort of thing. And here we are that, you know, it, this unimaginable uh, experience of not having air travel to suddenly having abandoned airports around the world occurred. And, and to me, it just, I wonder if, if there's going to be that ability for people to quickly adapt to, to things that climate change may deny us in the future, if it's, if it's forest lands, if it's, uh, if it's access to water. And then also with it is how people kind of reimagined getting the work done. I mean, if you were traveling for a vacation internationally, well, now you've got to do it locally. If you were going to conferences around the world, well, now you're doing it through Zoom or MS Teams or some other software. You know, is there anything like that in the climate literature about people saying, okay, when these these shocks, these changes are going to occur, how are people expected to or are we planning to adapt to some of these things down the road? Right. Well, again, it's it's a I mean, there's many of these things, as you, as you touched on, have, you know, climate related uh, implications. So, for example, the, you know, the, the reduction in air travel that's uh, that's happened. Um, you know, many people have been calling for that. Um, you know, to, 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 to reduce carbon emissions, you know, more teleworking um, and so on is one important way, one way in which we can reduce uh, travel emissions, you know, energy use and, and related carbon emissions. Um, but again, I think there's also a distinction between like COVID is something that hit us and we had to react immediately. Climate change isn't like that. Like it's all climate change mm-hmm. isn't going to arrive one day and then we have to respond. Climate change is already mm-hmm. here. It's been here with us for quite some time. It's already happening, right? There's no point at which we say, you know, like the way COVID just hit us, you know, and everything suddenly, you know, you know, for me, I'm a sports fan, and then the NBA shut down games, and then everything should have shut down from there at a you know, very precise point in March. It's not like that with climate change. There's no point where we say, ah, now we got to stop the, stop the planes flying. You know, we probably should have done that, you know, started reducing that, you know, 10, 15 years ago if we were really serious about it. Um, so there's no specific, you know, very acute point where, where the change um, will happen with climate change. It's already happening and it's gradually, it's it's building up, it, it you know, it's happening over time. It's in the news every day, you know, just a couple of weeks ago recently, you know, a big loss of a large scale uh, ice sheet, in, you know, in in the, in the Canadian Arctic, we see the news around wildfires getting more intense, and, and those are happening all the time. The heat waves that are happening, the the floods, the droughts, uh, all these things have been happening for some time, and and, and will continue to do so. So it's right. it's a different type of problem, um, but the now some overlaps and perhaps some similarities in, in some of the things that we need to do in response to the two problems. Although also some, some important differences, which we could also get into if you wish. 
Yeah, no, let's uh, let's think about that for a second. I mean, the uh, you know, in a way, we're we're looking into a crystal ball to try to figure out what what could be down the road. But as you say, it's it's not really the future. Like this is this is happening now. There's uh, especially with sea level rise, as you mentioned. So the ice sheets are are breaking up and sea levels are going up. Um, you know, you've you've had experience in your own research on this. Uh, I've been to uh, countries in the South Pacific where the sea level rise calculation is calculated to only be 80 years left. And, you, and you're seeing this already. And you're seeing the plans for these events already come into effect. Uh, I'm thinking particularly with many countries in the Pacific that are low-lying, such as uh, Kitabas and uh, Solomon Islands, for example, where countries like Australia and New Zealand have uh, started to work on policy for those events. But the nature of the policy is what is kind of worrisome. I mean, uh, it's advertised as the ability for people from low-lying areas in the Pacific to migrate to Australia and New Zealand, and that is correct, but as basically stateless workers, uh, people who will not be uh, given any sort of crack or credit towards the, the social contract of those two countries. And I think these are the sorts of things that that we've also got to pay attention to, not just the, the technical adaptations of, uh, you know, what are we going to put uh, biological fuels in airplanes? Are we going to fly them less? Are we going to rely more on trains? But the sort of moral positions of how we're going to take care of people who are going to be disproportionately affected by events like climate change, that I think is is worthy of a chat to figure out are we actually paying attention to the needs of the vulnerable? Are we paying attention to uh, the countries that are going to have massive disruptions from climate change? Or are we uh, of the opinion that it, it's only a bother when the wildfires in California make the headlines? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, and there, and there are certainly some, I think, some, some important parallels between COVID and climate change in terms of some of the issues that you just raised in terms uh, around the the impacts and the vulnerabilities in some of the uh, uh, you know groups that are more most vulnerable, you know we see with climate change um, that that's going to, I mean, it will affect all of us, um, but there are some people that are more vulnerable than others. So you know, low income people and you know some of the, you know, the small island states as their you know the, the sea levels rise and, and you know put their you know the risk of their their nations at you know their, their, their you know put the viability of those nations at risk you know people you know farmers in sub-saharan africa which are very vulnerable so we have these dis, you know disproportionate risk and we've also seen that play out uh in terms of covid in terms of uh vulnerabilities in terms of the working class people people of color who've been you know statistics are showing are have been more likely uh to get infected, although it also is a disease. It's also a disease that still affects all of us. So no one is completely free from it. Uh, although there are disproportional risks and disproportional impacts. So I think there's some parallels there, uh, you know, with with the climate question certainly, and, and issues of uh, environmental justice and climate justice that are important part of the climate question. So with that, with that environmental justice, I mean, are there considerations that? that you feel that are, are notable in terms of trying to g- bring more attention to those who are in a vulnerable state for this climate change crisis? Or, you know, is it, are these inequities that we've seen 
throughout history that have basically produced climate change uh, the way they have from very disproportionate uh, carbon consumption in some parts of the world to that of others. Is this like, are those inequities likely to carry on? Well, um, those inequities are certainly affecting the way the issues are playing out in terms of who's being affected. That, um, and But they're also generating responses in terms of a climate justice movement that is trying to put those issues on the agenda and and ensure that those uh, those inequities are taken into into account. So, I mean, this is all still to be, you know, you know, the, the game is still still at, at play. This is all still to be fought fought over. Um, so, those inequities certainly uh, are there, but they're certainly being contested. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and I think that. You know, it's, it's some people will tout the expression that, you know, crisis brings opportunity or uh, people perform their best in times of uh, in times of hardship. And what worries me quite honestly about this is that just to just to focus on COVID for a minute, you know, many countries in the world have pandemic playbooks and they they follow pretty similar script because of they get the international advice from World Health Organization. So you think see policies like sheltering in place and court on Senate dares and uh, restriction on travel. Um, and then, then you have regionally designed policies like bubbles or city lockdowns or self-isolation measures uh, or contact tracing that basically relies on the capabilities of each state. But there's a very shared language about the policy for this global issue with, with most states, except one. And that's the U.S. And there, it, you know, it, it is, as I've said in other podcasts on this uh, this course and on this show, that the the reason that it got so out of hand in the U.S. Uh, was just lack of capability. Uh, it, it's not a it's not a system in the United States that lends itself well to really maintaining health as much as it does chasing around illnesses and really as much as it is about reserving healthcare spots for those who can afford it. So when a crisis like the pandemic came up, we see that based on that inability, uh, it just gets coupled by the the populist uh, nonsense that that Donald Trump votes uh, out of the White House to the point where it actually translates itself into very ineffective policy at a national level. And I guess what I'm worried about is that you see this opportunity for many countries to sort of come together, work together, share shared values about how to approach this problem, but then you have this one, this one nation that says, no, uh, we're going to do it this way and we're just going to deny data and we're not going to care and we're just going to accept the consequences in almost a complete state of denial. And that's the real lesson that I'm taking away from this that gives me the the shivers about how as a global community we're going to deal with climate change. Yeah. Um, so there's certainly, I think, some, some interesting parallels there. Um, I might be inclined not to, I mean, not to reject what you're saying about the problems in the United States, but maybe just to suggest that it's the problems don't only exist in the United States. Yeah, quite right. Quite <clears throat> We've right. certainly seen, um, you know, similar kinds of politics. You know, you look at the president of Brazil, Bolsonaro, on both the COVID issue and the climate issue. Um, being, you know, having sort of attitudes of denial on both of those issues. Oh, shockingly so. I mean, the the, the guy not only had um, 
COVID masks with his face put on them, the, he himself contracted yeah. COVID-19 yeah. uh, after saying that it wasn't an issue for, for Brazilians. Yeah. So, you know, so we see that kind of politics play out, in, you know, in there's other countries where that kind of politics has played out. Um, and, I, you know, and, and I think there are some also some challenges when you think about climate change, the two biggest emitters, China and the United States on the COVID question. There's also things you can criticize on the, on the roles of both of those countries. You know, China was, 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 was late in terms of, you know, sharing information and revealing what was really happening. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, you know, in the United States, you know, you've seen it the at the federal level, um, really a kind of chaotic response uh, to COVID, and and really you know and and no response right at the federal level right now on climate change. Um, that said, the other thing to point out about the United States, which again it's similar in both COVID and climate change, is that there is at state and city levels often quite uh, strong uh, strong policy um, and a significant willingness and capacity to act, although they're certainly held back by the lack of support of federal action. Um, mm. but, but we shouldn't also, when we look at the United States, we also have to remember that it's, it's, well, it's a very divided country, and, but there are both you know, worrying signs, particularly at the moment in terms of the federal government, um, but uh, often some positive and inspiring action at uh, city and local levels. and, and and amongst community and, and citizen action. Yeah, no, I think that's where where the focus has to be, and you know, it's it, it's one of the the areas of of any sort of uh, questions about activism or change making that when you go after these sort of big national or international levels, they become these the these gargantuan problems, and it's hard to know where to grab a piece of it to to begin change. But but the local issues seem to be where where the strength is made. And and if you look at, I think some of the the most impressive climate change activism that we've seen in the last ten years, twenty years, but especially going back to the students, the the student led protests last year, you know, it was given a lot of global attention, especially around Greta Thunberg. But how her movement started out was just her herself in a um, you know one community in Sweden who just decided to protest on city hall saying I'm I'm striking from my school and then that scaled up and i think again you know there's there's enough madness coming out of certain seats of power if it's in brasilia if it's in washington if it's in 10 downing street however you however you go but at the community level people do share the same concerns and those are where the real connections are made this is where uh, opportunities to discuss things intelligently without that sort of uh, fanatic emotion that we get through the cable feed channels, that gets dismissed. And, you know, if, we're, if we can move on from COVID in a way where we may not have the same ability or privileges, or many of us did, some people never, never did, to, to jet set and jet set and connect in certain networks and consume certain medias and really create a very thin perspective of what of what global society is about and instead come back to the local um, if, if the bubbles continue to be erected so here in atlantic canada we have the atlantic bubble currently in cuba there's a bubble over havana and these bubbles will maybe be a part of bringing people together to to discuss and to to think and dialogue in ways that uh, maybe we've been losing track of in the past 10 or so years but then again i'm also a heart-filled optimist, and and this is your opportunity to 
tell me I'm wrong and destroy my dreams. Well, no, I think we, I think there are some opportunities there. And I think we, you know, it's important to look at, for those opportunities. And I think also to see um, where some of the strengths have been in terms of, you know, the way people have reacted to COVID. I mean, it plays out differently in different countries, but I think um, we've seen, um, you know, a lot of really strong action in terms by people doing their part, you know, in really quite an impressive act of solidarity, you know, in terms of most people, you know, acting responsibly, you know, staying home, social distancing, you know, wearing masks, all, all that kind of thing that's been, um, you know, and certainly in this in this part of the world, in, you know, in, in Atlantic Canada um, has been a you know, really important part of how we've managed to cope reasonably well uh, with the COVID challenge. I'm sure there, I think there was a little, probably a little luck along the way, but a lot of things that have been done right. And I think the strength of people doing their part uh, has been, uh, you know, has been a key part of that. You know, and I think that there are also other opportunities here in terms of, you know, you know, if there are restrictions in terms of, you know, in terms of long distance travel, there are also opportunities in, in rediscovering or perhaps discovering for the first time, you know, the places where the places where we live um, mm -hmm. and getting to, you know, really develop those uh, strong connections uh, and understanding of the places where we are and to, to build up those uh, those community connections. And uh, so there are definitely, I think, some opportunities there. Yep. Yeah. And, and I think um, maybe we can just tie it off on this, this last idea that I had. But the the other thing that, that I hope that comes away as a lesson that we don't, uh, you know, just chalk into our tendency to, to frequently have amnesia is that from COVID, it, it taught us a pretty strong lesson that uh, human beings aren't always at the apex of the of the, uh, the order of things in the world. I mean, um, viruses are, are abundant. There's, you know, they're, 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 they're not really even like, they're very simplistic. They're, they're parasitic by nature. They, they, uh, they, they bring these packages of genetic material to exploit another organism's metabolism in order to reproduce. That's it. in it's very simplest state. There are more than we can imagine. Uh, there's a couple studies that said that a single liter of seawater may contain more than 1 billion virus particles and that a kilo of dried soil can have 10 times that number. And, you know, the, the calculations of just how many viruses are in the world are, are enormous. But it only takes a couple to, to really find advantage over its target and then do a lot of damage to it. And just like, like that, if you couple it with sea level rising, uh, air temperature changing, sea level changing, uh, soil dynamics going off, forest fires going off. These are things that are in many ways bigger than us. And the, the sense that there's this invincibility and hubris to that will just overcome, will persevere, will take some losses. No, the, the viruses and, and the things coming up with climate change don't agree with that. And uh, it's time now to really focus on ways, I would like to think, to realize that we are mortal, that sometimes we're all small. We need, when we need to help, we need to help each other. And if uh, national leaders aren't serving that role, then find communities that will, that'll do that. Yeah, I, you know, I think that the, uh, you know, the example of COVID does, uh, you know, should be uh, a cause for some uh, humility and uh, I think sort of 
the sort of West Western society has not uh, really had a lot of that in terms of no. uh, you know the, the ability you know belief in uh, you know in human exemptionalism and and you know being able to you know to to grow and expand without limits and and without you know and losing you know and and not always recognizing the degree to which we're dependent. Um, on ecosystems dependent on nature and you know dependent on also stable climate conditions so yeah. um so i think that's important that that awareness is there um if i could also uh, also one other thing i wanted to mention in terms of maybe a difference between covid and the climate issue um and one of the things uh we've seen with covid is that um, you know one of the responses had you know had to be you know social distancing and we've found, you know, it's been challenging to create um, that sense of personal connection, at least in person. People have been connecting virtually, of course, um, but uh, it's kind of kept us apart in some ways. And I think when it comes to um, dealing with climate change and dealing with environmental challenges more generally, I think one important part of the issue is um, developing a new vision of, of living well within planetary limits. Yeah, that's a great idea. And I think we need to turn, you know, and I think it's happening to some degree, and I think we need to accelerate the change, but we need to move away from the past, you know, growth-oriented consumption, consumer-oriented vision of the good life to one that's focused on more on non-material sources of well-being. And the, the literature, the research shows that, you know, the strength of our connections with uh, with others, with our with our family, with our friends, with our sense of belonging and community, these are really important to our well-being. And if we can really cultivate that going forward, I think that can be an important part of a of a vision of living well. You know that requires you know that that turns away from such an emphasis on you know material consumption and all the energy and CO two emissions that go with it. Andrew Hayden, I am very happy to have shared these thoughts with you today. We, in as depressing as often our conversations are, I always greatly enjoy them. I didn't realize our conversations were depressing, but anyway, um, <laughs> I do enjoy them nevertheless. <laughs> yeah, I think it depends what topic we get onto, but you know, the point is we always find rays of sunshine. So that's the uh, that's the goal. But in all seriousness, the the insight. Uh, taken away from COVID-19 experience, I think you've given us some great comparative food for thought about what we should see coming for climate change and what may be uh, a very different uh, ball game altogether when it comes to preparing for climate change. So Anders Hayden, thank you very much for joining us on GDP and also for being part of the podcast series for Pandemic to Class offered at Dalhousie University. Well, thank you, Bob. Wow, 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 wow.